O soul, are you wearied and troubled? No light in the darkness, you see. There's a light for a look at the Savior and a life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Well, this summer we're going through a series entitled Life as Liturgy. And liturgy simply means the work of the people. It's this kind of old churchy word. But it's what we do daily and weekly with our lives. Uh, A work, a way that we order our lives, a rule of life, a, a rhythm that we put in place each day that forms us to be the kind of people that God desires. It also uh, is our work as a church, as the body of Christ in this world. Uh, so we've been talking about what these liturgies are and how they form us. They're, they're liturgies that um, some of them are reflective in prayer and some of them are actually um, action, us doing things. Um, today I want to talk about the liturgy of community, the work of community. And it's weird to talk about community because we're all isolated. And it's a really strange season. Uh, for me, as a pastor, so much of like pastoring, like the, the reward of it is like the relational connection. And so I was actually talking with a bunch of pastors this week, and everyone kind of feels this weariness and this sense of loss because so much of like our lives is like connecting with people. And so this is uh, an extremely difficult season as we're so disconnected. And if I'm feeling that, I'm guessing that you're feeling that too. Um, But what the church is, is it's a sacred and beautiful community. The people of God gather from all sorts of different backgrounds, different uh, parts of our our, our journey, walks of life. Uh, We come together centered around Jesus. And uh, Jesus is the thing that unites all of us and allows us to have life uh, shared with each other. And so we use churchy words like fellowship. Uh, or, uh, or community to, to kind of describe these relationships that we have that are these sacred relationships. And as I was thinking about this uh, idea of community today, uh, I wanted to look at a passage of scripture that I think is uh, one of the most fascinating stories of community in the New Testament with the early church. And it's the, it's, uh, the book of Philemon. And I love teaching on Philemon Uh, because it's the shortest book in the Bible. And I just want to read it. And as we read it together, um, listen to uh, just the words of Paul, who authored this letter, and then kind of pick up on the different characters that are in this letter. And so when we get to the end of it, you can say, I read an entire book of the Bible this week. I'm very accomplished, right? Uh, So let's turn to Philemon chapter 1. If you have your uh, Bibles or your app, whatever you want to do, it's also on the words behind us for those of you who are here today. Um, It says, Paul, verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Appia and Archippus. That's how I'm going to pronounce them. So if you want to pronounce them them correctly, Appia and Archippus, our fellow soldier and the church that meets in your home. I think that's significant. Where's the church meeting in a home? Most of you are probably at home right now, having home church. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives us thanksgiving and prayer. He says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. And I pray that your partnership, and if you're following and you want to highlight or circle that, 
the word partnership is important. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing that we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. So he starts this letter with this thanksgiving, and then it says Paul makes a plea for Onesimus. It says, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal on the basis of love. It is none other, it is uh, as... It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal for you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. And formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. And I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that I could take, he could take your place in helping me, whether I am in chains for the gospel, while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was so that you could have him back forever, no longer a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He was very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and his brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, there's that word again, welcome him as you would welcome me. And if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hands, and I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. It's probably a backstory there, right? I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of Lord Jesus Christ. Be with your spirit. And that's it. There you go. Full book of the Bible, right? We're able to read that in a couple minutes. Uh, smallest book in the Bible. Uh, but when you think about this letter, like it, it's telling a story. And there's some main characters in the story that we'll look at. But Paul's writing. And as we find out that Paul's old, this is when later in life, I kind of imagine Paul, this isn't like the young Paul uh, who was zealous and like persecuted the church and then became a Christian and brought all of that zeal and energy to the new church. This isn't the Paul that was angry with Peter that wrote Galatians. This isn't the Paul that was able to survive shipwrecks and all of that. This is Paul later in life. He's an old man. I'm imagining Paul kind of looks like Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, in Star Wars, like the old Obi-Wan. He's probably got like this brown, you know, Jedi robe. It says that he's like, under house arrest or in prison in Rome, I can imagine him like pinning this letter at candlelight. And he's kind of like this old sage full of wisdom and gentleness. And he's writing to a man named Philemon. And he's writing about another man named Onesimus, who apparently is a slave that used to be owned by Philemon and who has run away, which means he's an outlaw. Uh, He's wanted by the law. Somehow he runs into Paul in Rome, He has some sort of conversion experience, and he's helping Paul, and they come to this 
kind of understanding that, oh, you have run away from this life. You've left this life behind you, and I actually know who you're connected with. So for you to follow Jesus, for you to, to, to live this life that Jesus wants from you, you need to go back and reconcile. But Onesimus knows if I go back to Philemon, he's probably going to kill me. Now, this world is full of slavery. Uh, the time of the Roman Empire, there's something like 60 million slaves. It's, it's, it's part of this culture. And like the Christian church starts to, to speak into this culture of slavery. Um, but if you've ever like watched Spartacus, there's like these slave revolts that, you know, the legions come in, everyone dies. Like you see the church starting to speak into to slavery in very radical ways. At one point, Paul says, there is no slave or free. Greek or Jew, male nor they, they, they have this radical language of people are coming to Jesus and they're slaves and they're living in these houses with these people that aren't slaves. What do you do? And what we find is that the church is, is, is speaking into to humanity created in the image of God in ways that are just completely countercultural and radical for the time. And in fact, when we get later on in life, when we find that, you know, the great abolition movements, they're led by, you know, William Wilberforce in England, this follower of Jesus that is moving people away from slavery. But this is a time when slavery is just, you know, prevalent all over the world. And Paul is writing to Philemon about his slave who has run away, who now deserves death. And he's trying to mediate reconciliation. And he's making an appeal to Philemon, to not only like free Onesimus, but to, to welcome him into the family as a follower of Jesus. This is like unheard of. This would have been just a, a, a radical appeal from Paul. And I think that this story is so fascinating that it's a personal letter, um, but, it, but it's such an amazing story. And I think like what we'll find um, later on in this message is it, it became like this amazing story in the early church. And so as they start to canonize scripture and they start to pull together the scripture that says, these are the words that were divinely inspired, this letter made such a big difference that they said it must have been of God. That Paul, when he wrote this, it was this divinely inspired letter, even though it was a personal letter. And whatever happens because of this letter was was incredible and life-changing. And when you think about the community of the early church, you have stories like this where there's this man like Philemon, who's this like wealthy, prominent man, and then this slave like Onesimus now living into community together. It would have been just a wild story, a wild story. So I want to look at like three, three of the main characters of this story, um, Philemon, Paul, and Onesimus, and kind of their role in the story. The first, Philemon. Uh, Philemon is this wealthy, prominent a businessman living in Colossae, which is in Turkey, kind of like on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. Um, we, we're not really sure what Paul's connection is with him because Paul's never traveled to his town. Probably what happened is Paul ran into him in Ephesus, which was one of the leading cities, um, had this conversation with him, leads him to Jesus. Philemon becomes this very influential leader in the church. And then there's Appia. Uh, Appia was probably Philemon's wife. Most scholars say that this is uh, you know, the, the woman that's sister in Christ is probably actually Philemon's wife. So it's a personal letter, but it's not private. The whole family is receiving this. Archippus, most scholars think that he's probably the son of Appia and Philemon. And not only is he the son, that he's probably the pastor that's leading this house church in Colossae. And so the letter is to Philemon, but they all, you know, if this is the whole family, they all know probably Onesimus because Onesimus is probably living in their household before he runs away. 
and they're receiving this letter together, and they probably have all sorts of feelings about Onesimus. Uh, Maybe as he ran away from them, he stole some household items. There's probably some anger, some bitterness, some resentment. Um, They probably want, you know, the the law to, to intercede and Onesimus to get what he deserves. And then they're this family receiving this letter for Paul. So imagine, like, as Philemon, you're receiving this, and the appeal is for you to forgive someone who's wronged you. Or forgive someone who has done you wrong. They are, are done you dirt. Like he, he, he's having this appeal now where as a follower of Jesus, he has to decide, is he going to offer forgiveness? And then you have Paul who's writing this letter. We know a lot of background on Paul, the apostle. Uh, but there's something interesting as Paul starts to write. Like he's older in life. And as he's making this appeal to Philemon, a couple things happen. Is One is that it's an invitation. He doesn't use coercion to get Philemon to do what he wants. Like Paul is this, you know, later in life, this great figure in the church, this authoritative figure, and he has, you know, the authority to say, Philemon, you need to do this. But he doesn't use his authority to coerce his desire. He makes an appeal, an invitation for Philemon to be generous. And the appeal is for love. It says in verse 8, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought, Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Paul makes this appeal to Philemon on the basis of love to forgive Onesimus. He makes an invitation, then he appeals to love, and then here's what it is. It's it's an appeal to reconciliation and an appeal to this thing called koinonia. So verse 17 says, So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. So this idea of reconciliation for Paul, reconciliation was what was one of the main missions of the church, to reconcile people to God and people to each other were instruments of reconciliation. And what's interesting in this letter, this is Paul's only letter in Scripture, that Paul doesn't bring up the cross, He doesn't bring up the gospel message of Jesus dying for our sins, us deserving death and receiving forgiveness because of the death of Jesus on the cross. He doesn't bring up the resurrection. But in this verse, Paul embodies the gospel. Paul embodies what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be like Jesus. Because what Paul says is, this slave that has run away from you, this slave that deserves death, Whatever he has done to wrong you and whatever he owes you, charge that debt to me. For Paul, he's embodying the gospel in his actions, trying to reconcile these two people together. And this is what happens when you become a follower of Jesus, when Jesus transforms your heart, you understand that you receive something that you don't deserve This idea of salvation is grace. It sets us free. It's what Jesus has done for us. And it shapes us so that in our relationships, in our relationships, we are willing to lay down our our, our wealth, our benefit, our our, our place of whatever, of its privilege or authority to say, I will take on the debt of this slave. This is this radical act from Paul to say, whatever Onesimus owes you, Philemon, charge it to me. It's an embodiment of the gospel that has transformed Paul's heart. 
And it's a matter of reconciliation now. He's mediating between these two people that have been separated. And then he says this, uh, this idea of partnership. If we're partnered together, the word for partner, this is why I had you underline it, is the Greek word koinonia. And koinonia means to share together or to, to mutually participate together. Like for the church, we call it fellowship. There's something that bonds us together relationally, that we're sharing life. And so we are able to sacrifice for each other because there's this partnership and commitment to each other out of love that we're bonded together, that we're mutually participating in relationship together, which allows things like the sacrifice for each other. Because we love each other, we're carrying each other's burdens. So Paul makes an appeal, it's an invitation, it's an appeal out of love. He's desires for reconciliation. He's embodying the message of the gospel in this story. And he's desiring koinonia. And then finally in verse 11, what we find, or verse 21, like Paul expects the best out of Philemon. And you'll find this, I think this is why Paul is such a compelling leader. I think this is why he's such a dynamic personality is he's the kind of person when you're around him he he sees the potential in you he sees the best of you he sees that you're created in the image of God and he expects the best out of you verse 21 says confident of your obedience I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask to expect the best in others it's hard for me I'm a cynical person yesterday I went hiking with two of my brother-in-laws, and we were hiking Humphreys Peak. And Humphreys Peak is a super challenging hike. But we were having all sorts of conversation about just everything that's happening in life. And like, if you ever hang out with me for a while, you realize like I'm just a cynic. I can pick apart anything. I can complain about whatever. But then my other brother-in-law, Danny, uh, isn't a cynic at all. He actually said one negative comment, and my other brother-in-law seems like, Danny, I've never heard you say a negative comment about someone before. And and we were talking about that, and Danny's like, I just believe in the potential for humans. I think that we should expect much from people. We should, we should encourage other people to live up to, to being created in the image of God. And if you've been around Danny, Danny he's, he's a compelling personality. You like being around him. And I think that when, when your heart is shaped by God, you, you're able to see people as Jesus sees people, which means you're able to see someone that's worthy of dying for them because you see something unique about them. Paul always sees that in other people, and he expects the best out of others. He sees something in them that says, live up to this. You're created in the image of God. And then finally, there's Onesimus, this third character. And Onesimus is the one that's, that's left with this option. I could continue running, or I could take the risk and go back and ask for forgiveness and make things right. This would have been a, an, a, a, a very uncertain um, future for Onesimus as he decides to do this. He would have had um, no idea how Philemon was going to react. Uh, it says, verse 11, formerly, uh, uh, oh yeah, and, and Onesimus, uh, by the way, his name, his name Onesimus in Greek means profitable or useful. So imagine this, like you're, you're, you're a slave and they've named you because like your character is that you're useful to them. That's kind of like where his identity starts. And as Paul's writing about Onesimus, and he's gotten to know Onesimus, he writes in verse 11, he says, Formerly he was useless to you, even though his name was useful, but now he has become useful to you and to me. 
So Paul's like making a pun off of his name. Like his name is useful and profitable. And, and I have seen this in his life. He's actually been very useful to me. And he's going to be useful to you. Uh, and he says this about Onesimus, that, that whatever his identity used to be, the way that he's useful now is this relational connection. He's brought value to my life. And I think that he will, as he returns to you, you'll find that he brings value to you as well. And Onesimus has to go back and face Philemon and see how Philemon is going to react to him. Um, there's this old story um, that I think, um, as we look at kind of like what this transformation that happens with Onesimus, it, it kind of sums it up. There's this old story, to, uh, story that's told about two brothers. I think it was like back in like medieval Europe. And uh, the two brothers are convicted of stealing sheep. They steal sheep, they get caught. And as a punishment for stealing the sheep, what someone in the town does is decides to brand their forehead to let everyone know that they are thieves. And so as kind of like you know, young teenagers, they get this branding on their forehead that says the, the letters ST, which stands for sheep thieves. And now from now on, everyone's going to know kind of what their identity is. These are, these are people that cannot be trusted. And so it says, like the story goes, that one of the brothers was so ashamed of this branding and this marking, and he was so bitter that this would happen to him, that he decides to run away. He leaves the town, he takes off, and he's never heard of again. The other brother realizes that he's made a mistake by being a thief, that everyone in the town knows this about him, and he says, I want to commit my life. Something happens inside of him that says, I want to change who I am. But I can't do that because everyone sees who I am because of this branding. But I'm going to spend the rest of my life being a man of integrity and being a man of generosity. And so the rest of his life, he just commits to serving people in this town. And he does it for year after year after year until one day, this young kid who was branded is now an old man. And a villager, a, a, a traveler comes to the village and he sees him. And he sees this old scar that says ST on his forehead. And he starts to ask the town people, why in the world does that old man have this branding on his forehead? And the townspeople say, you know, we're not really sure. We can't really remember all the particulars, but we think it stands for something. We think it ST stands for saint. For this young boy who became an old man, like his identity changes and it transforms. Something inside of him changes and he spends the rest of his life redeeming so that at the end of his life, the brand has transformed, it stands for something else. People in the town think he's a saint. And I love that story because Onesimus goes back to Philemon and he's begging for forgiveness and he is committed to being useful. He's committed to adding value to their family. His identity has been changed because of Jesus and his future now will be different. Here's the thing about following Jesus that we see in the life of Onesimus. That following Jesus is not about escaping or running away from our past. It's not about just running away. It's not like we, we talk about how you become a new person, but that doesn't mean you just run away from the things that you've, you're ashamed of or the things that are in your past. Following Jesus enables you to face your past. It enables you to face your past and then rise above it or to redeem it or to transform it. And I think what's so compelling about the story is that Onesimus goes back and he faces up to what he's done. And because of how he's been transformed, he's been empowered 
to rise above all of the mistakes that have happened in the past. In fact, we know this, that, that his life is, is, is transformed, that Philemon forgives him. Because if you look 50 years into the future, we actually have documents of, of this area of the early church, and they're writing letters back and forth, and some of these documents are still preserved today. One of them was written by this man named Ignatius. Ignatius is one of the early martyrs of the church, and Ignatius is... Uh, he gets basically thrown in prison because of, uh, he's following Jesus, and he goes to, to become a martyr. And he's traveling through Ephesus, near the place where all this happens, and he's writing to this bishop, the Bishop of Ephesus. And the bishop's name, it's this old, wise bishop. His name is Onesimus. And so the tradition tells us that as he writes this letter, he's using the same language and puns that Paul uses in his letter to Philemon. And so it's very personal. And so it tells us that not only did Onesimus go back, he becomes reconciled with Philemon, but he goes on to become a leader in the church. Philemon's forgiveness for Onesimus empowers him to have this unbelievable future where he goes from being a slave to being one of the young uh, leaders in the church to becoming this old, wise bishop that people are writing about year and year, years, years later. That's the power of forgiveness. That's the power of community. That's the power of rising above our past, the transformation that we have in Jesus. This is an incredible story, and I think that the early church knew the power of this letter that Paul wrote and its impact on the community and they were like, this has to go into the New Testament. Something about this was divinely inspired. The church is the sacred and beautiful community. So three kind of questions as we think about the story. We think about community. We think about life as liturgy. I, I often find that you can identify with one of these three characters in this story. Maybe, uh, maybe you're like Philemon. And someone has wronged you. And you have this decision to make for forgiveness. And we all, we've been wounded in many different ways. Uh, that doesn't mean there's necessarily like a future relationship with the person that's wronged you, but there's something that needs to be let go of and released in your life because of that wronging. There's something powerful about the act of forgiveness that allows just a new future to happen. And finally, Lehman was faced with that, and he's able to forgive Onesimus. Or maybe... You know, maybe you're like Paul, and you are mediating between two people that are estranged from each other, and you know, I can help bring about forgiveness here. I can mediate between these two relationships that are broken, and I can do that by appealing to love. I can do that through invitation. I can do that through being an instrument of reconciliation. I can do that through believing the best in other people. I can embody the gospel and step into this broken relationship and bring about peace and reconciliation. Or maybe you are like Onesimus and you've had something happen that you know is in the past, but it might be something that you're ashamed of. It might be something that you're running from and you know that you need to return, whether it's to ask for forgiveness or make, make things right. And you, you know that that in your heart this is what you need to do and you don't have the courage to do it. Maybe you need to find someone like Paul that would allow this reconciliation to happen, but to return and seek reconciliation. Something powerful is released when we're able to do that. 
And maybe like Onesimus, maybe it's you've been running from God. Maybe your relationship with him is broken and you need to come to a point where you just ask for forgiveness, where you allow yourself to be reconciled by the creator of this universe. We believe that we are able to do that because our hope is in the cross, that our hope is in resurrection. And maybe today you need to stop and just return to God. Not sure where you're at in this story. Maybe you're a couple of people in this story. But we want to take some time to just reflect on that and pray. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. Even in a small little letter like this, Lord, it's just packed with power and meaning. Lord, we see these, just the beautiful community that's on display in the early church in a world that was messy and confusing and full of brokenness. It was full of all sorts of different um, of levels of, uh, of authority and privilege. There were huge uh, cultural identities that were separating people. And yet there was something that happened when they gathered in your name. Lord, I ask that we would fix our eyes on you, that we would turn our attention to you in the midst of everything that's happening in our world right now. Lord, I pray that we would be instruments of reconciliation. That it would start in small ways in our hearts and in our relationships with the people that we are connected with daily. Lord, that we would put on display this beautiful uh, embodiment of the gospel and how we uh, approach our relationships, much like Paul. Lord, we would take on the debt of other people. We would stand in the gap. Lord, that we would have eyes to see the goodness in others, to expect the best, to encourage and call out the best in others. That this would be the work of your people, Lord. A liturgy of community. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.